This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All aboard the Anatomy of Movie Train as we dissect murder on the Orient Express. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. That's right, we do. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's the dynamic duo of Dimitri Panos and Phil Svitek. Hey, movie fans. Yeah, we're missing Miss uh, Miss Sickly, Miss Marissa Serafini. Hope she feels better soon. Hopefully she wasn't murdered. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully she wasn't on the Orient Express. A um, couple of things. First off, welcome. Thank you for joining us if this is uh, your first time. A, know that it's spoiler-filled. B, you can always get a rundown in the description box so you can follow along with our various notes and so forth. Um, if you're returning, welcome back. Welcome. Absolutely. Um, and as we always like to do, let's start with overall impressions. Usually we say ladies first, but... <laughs> I'll, I'll step in. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, well, you know, Murder on the Orient Express. I'm a really big fan of the uh, 1974 Sidney Lumet version. I've never read the book. Um, surprisingly so. So going into this, uh, the the trailers for me intrigued me. I was looking forward to it. Uh, It's been a long time since, well, since 74. Um, And I got to say, listen, regardless of whether or not you know, regardless of whether or not you know how it ends or who done it in this who done it, I think felt that this movie was it's definitely worth boarding i think uh kenneth brana as director and uh hercule Poirot, he really makes this his own movie and it still is extravagant and lush uh and he does a really good job uh it's very excellently cast and beautifully shot i think it has a both a great mix of a contemporary cast with um, some stalwarts within the industry, Michelle Pfeiffer, um, uh, be, be Johnny Depp, uh, being some names that come to mind, and I really think uh, he did a really good job with his cast, with the production design. Um, <clears throat> it was great seeing Daisy Ridley outside of 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 Ray in Star Wars. I think it was a very smart role for her to take, and we get to see her act, and she's very natural and comfortable in doing it. And it was great to see her outside of that. I think this is the only movie since Force Awakens that we've that, seen her in that I recall. Yeah. That I can recall. Um, so it was great. And then you had other people like Willem Dafoe, another you know elder statesman, so to speak. Who is great with his accent and portrayal. And when his twist comes, you're like, wow, he did that so seamlessly and flawlessly, changing his accent and everything. Um, Listen, I I think Johnny Depp, again, proves he can be an actor's actor, regardless of what's going on in his personal life. Uh, He was great in movies like Black Mass, obviously, Captain Jack Sparrow. But in this movie, as the gangster Ratchet, which isn't that a great name for for, for a gangster? Yes. <laughs> Ratchet, right? Absolutely. And, and he played it, you know, he played it different. He made it his own. He wasn't Richard Widmark, 
of the 74 version, but he was great. And when he spars, spars, you know, spars against Poirot, you know, it's, it's brawn versus intellect for sure. And he didn't look foolish doing it, even though he's mispronouncing names and stuff. It was a great scene. There's a great scene between Ratchet and Poirot where he's asking him uh, to work for him, which I loved. Uh, the movie looks great from cinematography to production design. Um, you know, and it's, and it's predicated, it's a locked door mystery. So it's predicated on character and dialogue. There's nothing really salacious about it. Um, not predicated on set pieces and or violence. This really is, it's, it's, it's lavishly paced too. So it's a really good adult take to go to the movies. It reminded me of how movies were made, uh, you know, I just thought, yeah, I had a really good time boarding the Orient Express for this mystery. I'll summarize it in such a way. I I was really excited for this movie. It started off really strong, um, as you said. Um, it it once we, the train got out of the tracks, we were moving well along, and but unfortunately, metaphorically and literally, as soon as the snow hit, we stopped dead in our tracks. And that was my problem. I, I I just had a big problem with the second half of the movie. Okay. Um, it didn't progress in a similar way um, as this did. And, and part of me, th- this might have been the marketing. And, and I, you know, once the movie sort of got going, I, I, I knew to expect less of these sort of tricks. But um, just the way the trailer laid it out where, you know, they had the graphics with, you know, uh, the, the, the maid, the this. Right. Um, I really wanted those sort of techniques Um to come because I think uh, it, it would have allowed an internalization of Hercule mm-hmm. and what he's thinking. Um, but do you think that that would be taking from the Sherlock Holmes, the BBC Sherlock Holmes uh, series? Because the, that series does that to great effect. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously they're, they're going to be compared, you know, right. forever. Um, but I, I wouldn't have necessarily minded it. I, I, I don't know. I've been really trying to think of why um, the second half wasn't as fun. Um, maybe it's a couple of websites have cited this. Like, it's not that the actors playing the roles are bad. It's just that they're playing such archetypes that they don't really get to move around in their character, if, if you will. And I'm a little bit disappointed on that because it didn't live up to what I fully wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And especially okay. when it started off so strong. Right. Now, let me ask you this. Um <laughs> It's it's a twofold question. Did you, well, actually threefold? Have you ever read the the book, the Agatha Christie book? Negative. Uh, Nineteen seventy four. Seen it. Okay. So going into this, you knew the ending. Yes. Right. And and, and a lot of what I think too, yeah, you know, a mystery is is predicated on its ending, and knowing that who done it, well, they all done it, <laughs> and and it's the way. Uh, you know, so going into it, I know that they all did it, but it's how are you going to keep me engaged? And, you know, I remember seeing the 1974 version without knowing what the ending was going, wow, that was really, geez, that was clever. I've never seen a whodunit where everybody was involved. And going into this one, it was like, how's Brana going to put this all together and still make it engaging for me? Because I know, I know who did it, so to speak. And how's that going to happen? And I really felt that the, the performances and the way that he directed it really kept me still engaged. I loved watching 
everybody. I loved it watching everybody's performances, so to speak. Um, you know, if I'm quibbling, it was the, like the the chase scene involving Josh Gad seemed very out of place in this movie. You know, I mean, this is a like I said, it's a locked door mystery. It should have stayed locked door. Um, I didn't mind necessarily that they they went outside of the train for Poirot for Poirot to interview people. Uh, there was a great scene, a beautifully shot scene, I thought, with Daisy Ridley's character. And then, of course, you had the Last Supper, <clears throat> so to so to speak, uh, at the end with our characters at the table. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer, I, I, he, she was just fantastic. I don't know. The second half for me, that was the that that I guess would be the half that I was most concerned about because they are very stationary at this point. How am I going to be engaged? And I felt Brana, for me anyways, he kept it going along with the great, I thought the very good performances by, by our cast. Here. Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the interesting parts about this was the fact that, you know, in, in, the, in the 74 one, we start with Armstrong. That's plot point number one. You get that information out of the way, and then it's like, okay, how does it tie in? Right here, we have a completely different start, and that doesn't come into play until much later, which I thought for this movie actually worked quite nicely. Because um, we, you know, I mean, ultimately, when you talk about a murder mystery uh, or mystery of any kind, you can even talk about Scooby Doo in that way, whatever. Right. I don't care. Uh, it, it's about when you, how, and when you reveal the information to the audience. Sure, absolutely, um, and that's that's part of the trick. Oh, I agree with you, and it's so key and integral to a mystery and for making it work. Um, we talked about The Snowman some weeks back, and what a failed mystery that movie is. And this one's the exact opposite for me. And you're right. Like When you see the 1974 version, um, it starts off with that newsreel clip of Armstrong, which is basically almost like the, the, the Hearst kidnapping kind of thing, right? Or is it Lindbergh? Lindbergh. Lin- the Lindbergh. It was, yeah. yeah. I mean, we could talk about the inspiration. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and that movie starts off with that. And since you're going into a movie called Murder on the Orient Express, Orient Express, you're wondering, why am I watching this? Like, how is this going to, how does this relate to what I'm about to watch? And as that movie goes along, you're like, oh, okay. what a, That's a wonderful tie-in. And I was wondering how they were going to do it here. And, and to your point, <laughs> Phil, I agree. I think that they integrated it with the flashback and with the characters and with Poirot's thought process. I thought sometimes flashback can get in the way of progressing a movie, but not here. And I think this is one of the ways in which Brana made this version of Murder on the Orient Express his own. They just changed that a little bit, and I thought they did a good job. It gave a better sense. It didn't... It didn't rely on the audience to have to try to remember, because sometimes, but it did it in a way that was palpable uh, without obstructing the progress of the movie, I felt. Yeah, it was very well done. Well, in terms of Agatha Christie, um, obviously, Bryn, so many, so many um, books, and primarily the the protagonist tends to be Hercule. Um, And in fact, you know, the, the real book's title, right, Hercule, Poirot in Murder on the Orient. Poirot. Poirot. I'm never, I'm never going to say it correctly, so forgive me at this point. I'm just going to call him Hercule because that's at least something I'm... I'm Hercule. I'm a, I'm a little bit closer to that. 
Um, but uh, you know, she she done a obviously a number of these uh, quite a, quite a collection of books. If you ever want to dive in, um, one of my other favorites is uh, um, Ten Little Indians. Oh, of course. The, 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 you know, from that. Um, but and anyway, t- and she, when you think about Ten Little Indians, think about what that spawned. Like yeah. you know, I mean, so many other mysteries use or pay homage to Ten Little Indians as a template. Why would you, so even even um, as recently as eight, eight, the Hateful Eight? Although yeah. I didn't think it did it to the best way because <clears throat> with that movie, not everyone gets to the same place at the same time. Right. So that that was the unfortunate undoing of that movie for me. Um, but you know, she uh, she saw the you know. As we made mention, it was based off a real story in terms of the Armstrong case. Um, but then she had also uh, been on the Orient Express. A lot of the characters were based on her interaction with people that she saw there. And mm-hmm. then, I guess, six months later, it did get caught in a snowstorm. So those all elements went together to solve this. And <laughs> you're all right? You're going to make it? <laughs> I'll make it. Um, well, you know, and what, what I was going to say, too, is that as far as... Some of those people's um, criticism about these characters being archetypes. Well, in a sense, they sort of kind of are. Like, that's how, at least in the Agatha Christie murder mysteries that I've watched, those people do stand for a particular archetype of a person. Um, But I think they work best in a mystery because it's a great way to give an audience a red herring. Because you think of that archetype as something, it's a good way of diverting attention from somebody or or, or putting attention on somebody. Uh, and that's where I think, too, it works in Murder on the Orient Express. Because you go into this mystery, you go into any mystery thing, okay, it's a whodunit. It's not an everyone's done it. It's a who you you thinking one person. What did they have to do uh, regarding that person? And that's why I think the ending to murder is is very murder on the Orient Express differs from so many other murder mysteries. No. Even that she has done. You know, even on Death in the Nile, which I thought was a great throwback in this movie that that could potentially be the next the next one. movie. Um I, I well, I really enjoyed the ending of the movie as far as the sentiment that he has of, yeah, um, you know, in this one, I, I can't really bring justice. Right. I, uh, if you have the more exact quote, by all means, throw it in there. But um, that was a particular moment where I didn't think, because of the, the way they built it up, he's always so calm and, and whatnot. It just seemed somewhat of a throw. It didn't, it didn't have the impact on him as much as I wanted it to have. Therefore, it didn't have the impact on me. Okay, because you know he was—he's obviously a very matter-of-fact kind of person. Oh, you know, sure. He's just there to observe and and kind of tell it like it is. But in that instance, I mean, what, what I loved about that sentiment, that idea, was that for the first time ever, it shook him. Right. And uh, but then he didn't really do much with it. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, and I took it as there's nothing that he could do. I mean, he could. He had that choice. He made a choice that goes against his detective grain as to seeking justice. But that's what this—that's what the story is about. Poirot is searching for a justice because somebody was murdered. Who do we find? Everybody's done it. 
And their reasoning was for a justice. This ratchet man, he's not a nice man. Um, killed a child. Uh, now he's in dealing fake art and swindling people. He's a gangster. And it was a justice that these people, because of his injustice in that case, that earlier case, that kidnapping case, it affected. And that's the other great thing, too, is it affected all of these characters where it, in many, it changed the paths of their lives. Um, and that's what I really appreciate about this, the Michelle Pfeiffer character. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like that. And Poirot walking off the train seemed to be his moral <laughs> dilemma. Everything that's ingrained in him, I, I just felt that his stoicness actually said plenty, other than the, the self-internalizing for me. Anyways. Well, I, I also I appreciate the tie-in where he was called in to do that mystery, the Armstrong mystery, to begin with. Right. Didn't get there in time. And, you know, it happened the way that it did. And so this is kind of... I, I did the nice bow at the end of it. You know, he did actually at least resolve this case. Mm -hmm. Not glamorously, but, <laughs> no. but it's, it's over. No, but with any good detective story, too, um, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler uses this... Uh, I was, I'm a big fan of the Robert B. Parker, the Spencer series. You know, sometimes the case doesn't get closed neatly it's closed but not too much satisfaction to maybe sometimes the, the client and in some cases the detective himself you know has to take his lumps in order for the case to be solved to me those are great those are great that's a great archetype to a detective okay it's because that gives that detective his code of honor something that questions his code or her code I should say, her, his or her code of honor or ethics, because any good detective, there's a reason why Batman is called the Dark Knight with a K and IGH, not because he goes out at night, because he is a knight. He stands up for people. He has a code. Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe has a code. Spencer and the Spencer Mysteries has a code of ethics, and so doesn't Hercule Poirot. And when they get questions and when when they get questioned and when he has to reevaluate, he's not happy about it. But he figures this is the best. How can in that 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 case that took place so many years before and all these people were done in injustice, how can he, a man of justice, like how does he grapple with that? He could turn him in, but then he, he knew that he would still have to grapple with what happened. Um that those to me are good in any good key mysteries. I wanted to talk because you, you, you were, t we were talking Agatha Christie at the beginning, mm -hmm. right? So catch this five decades. All right. Her, her writing career, 66 crime novels, six non-crime novels, 150 short stories. She wrote over 20 plays of, of which the most famous, the mousetrap is the longest running play in the world. Having debuted in 1952, uh, I believe Mousetrap was uh, turned into a movie with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. Really good movie. If you haven't seen it, try to try to search for it. Look at this. With more than two billion books published, she is outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. 
Okay. Yes. An early translatable. Her books have been published in over 100 languages, making her the most translated writer of all time. That's, that's quite an accomplishment. Right? That's, that's crazy. You know, so I, I, I really appreciated the fact. But when I watched the trailer, too, you know, the other thing that I got and I said in my review, it was a, it's a fabulous throwback to the way movies were made. You know, let's let's hash this out via dialogue. Um, you know, it's a good murder mystery. It, for me, the pacing was fine, too. It didn't. This movie could have languished on for three hours, but it didn't. I felt like it was uh, I felt it was it was a nicely paced movie. And uh, it was it got beautiful. to its destination on time. You would I, say. I would say yeah. I would say like when it was over, it was yeah. over. They made their they made the good cuts. Yeah. Um and where, where where we somewhat agree in the second half, you know, I thought this is that that the second half of the movie too, um, really, I don't know. For me, it just kicked in because it gave. That's when the actors performed. Mm-hmm. That's when they were acting. We get introduced to them early on, uh, but once they start to be interrogated, uh, once the murder takes place. Uh, that's when we see, you know, to me, we were already introduced to Poirot. It was a great opening scene. It was a fun mm-hmm. opening scene. Um, obviously different than the 74 version. Um, but but it, it tells you the character of Poirot. When he steps in that pile of poop, right? And he says, hmm, now i got to balance it out. <laughs> like, instead of just wiping it off, with his other foot, he steps in it so he's balanced. That says everything you need to know about that character, you know? Um, so I really thought it was a good setup. Um, I thought yeah. so, too. And, uh, you know, what, what's fun, what's ultimately real fun about the movie is that in this particular instance, they're all playing archetypes to hide who they really are. Yes. And I think that that's the fun part of it. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe it is because I knew the uh, ending of it. I think maybe it would have been a lot more fun because then that would have been a, a reveal aspect of it. Um, but I, I do applaud overall. I thought they handled this, because it's an enormous cast. It is. and But it's not, it, you know, this isn't uh, Ocean's Eleven. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, Hercule is the guy. He's you the know, guy. everyone else is, uh, uh, you know, set dressing, if you will. Sure. Um, but the, 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 the way they all were able to interact and so forth and kind of do a balance of that. Um, I thought it worked really well. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and, and again, I don't know if we want to go into the like the casting, but the the, the 1974 version is billed as a as a who's a who a who's who of whodunits. I mean, you were we could talk about a comparison, and there's nothing that's ever going to compare to the 74 version cast. You just can't do it um but i think our cast has a wonderful mix like like i said um and and it is our it is our elder statesman actors who really are given the opportunity to shine but like i said they're like judy dench uh was great but again i think people such as daisy ridley it was in the way that kenneth Branagh filmed he used a lot of close-up in this movie and the eyes really do tell a story and i thought she just looked so comfortable acting and doing this job and being out of that star wars universe that 
I found that she was enjoying herself. Nothing against her performance in Star Wars. I, I Ray has literally become one of my favorite Star Wars characters, period. But I really, but it, that's because of Daisy Ridley, and uh, I really felt that for the for the up and comers, like she really stood out. But for me, so didn't um, for me so didn't Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, I thought she was amazing, but pro, but but Kenneth Branagh as Proro. Look, that's a, that's a role. When you look at what Albert Finney accomplished as Proro in '74, that's tough to beat. This movie could be that character could be caricature. You know, it could come off as sort of you don't take them seriously. Well, especially because, like I mean, the mustache isn't real, and, and right. So they they were able to do it, um, but. It, you know that, that that's a very fine detail that, if done incorrectly, could have been the make or break of his character. Uh, yeah, you know, and the, one of the aspects, and the way he talks to people could be. Um, but but let's do a quick comparison if we could, because we're talking old school Hollywood. We're talking classic Hollywood. Albert Finney, Lauren Bacall, like who could you know? She plays Mrs. Hubbard, which is Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer does a really good job. She's fantastic. Lauren Bacall is is classic Hollywood. So is an Ingrid Bergman, Sean Connery, uh, Martin Balsam, Jacqueline Bisset, uh, John Gilgood, uh, Anthony Perkins. I mean, we, Michael York, Vanessa Redgrave. I mean, we are looking at cl- some classic Hollywood. This one, I don't know who classic Hollywood, you know, Fits like Michelle Pfeiffer is great, but who else could you have cast? I mean, George Clooney, I guess. I mean, I don't know what kind of a cast you can get that compares to the 74. I, I think it's impossible to try, and I don't think Brana did try. And I, I don't, think, I don't people, think he did, and yeah. I, I don't think he was interested. I think, no. uh, you know, he wanted to get people that were enthusiastic and about the material and, and just go for it. And, and were good, recognizable names Penelope Cruz. She uh, really wanted to do this movie. Yeah. So. She did, and but that's fantastic. And she worked with Johnny Depp yeah. again, because uh, as we as we learned through our Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, they became good friends. They're good friends, Pirates of the Caribbean, and it's because of Penelope Cruz that Harvey R. Bardem, who she's married mm-hmm. to, did the last Pirates of the Caribbean that Johnny Depp was in. So, to me, this cast appeared to have bonded really well, being on this set and being that it was so intensive. That they had to bond, and I found that that worked great. Yeah, um, there's a great interview with um, Josh Daisy and uh, I believe Leslie, um, and they're talking about sort of how they were in awe. Even Michelle Pfeiffer, when she first met Judy Dent, she was like in complete awe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny, and uh, I don't know how accurate this is, but in, I would recommend watching the video because I'm not going to do it justice. But Josh Gad remembers the first day. And, like, endearingly, I guess Judy then just kept calling him Fatso. <laughs> and he loved it. He's not, like, offended by it whatsoever. He says, she called me Fatso, and I loved it. That was her I, can, I can picture her doing that. <laughs> That's funny. That's great. And then, of course, there was that video that came out that Josh Gad and Daisy Ridley, while they were filming this, he did that. He kept on incessantly asking her about Star Wars The Last Jedi and that video that had come out, you can find it in which they're in her trailer. Everybody, a who's who of people today, including J.J. J. Abrams, 
uh, was there. So it did look like they had a very, very good time. Uh, you know, I found it interesting to to get to this point that it took it took five years to get the rights to make this movie again from the uh, from the Christie estate, and that to me is sort of kind of I would have thought somebody may have uh, the rights must have lapsed, I suppose, uh, since 1974, but they had to go out and get them again. And Simon Kinberg, if memory serves, he's like. X-Men producer and such, you know, is involved in this. And then they got Ridley Scott involved. Uh, And then Ridley Scott got his buddy collaborator, Michael Green, writer, uh, who just did Blade Runner 2049. He also wrote Logan, which is Simon Kinberg. So it's there's the whole Hollywood circle. Hey, we're doing Murder on the Ernie Express. Michael Green happened to be a big Agatha Christie fan. And he wanted to work with Kenneth Branagh. You know, it was all like the, the the stars were aligned for this movie to be to be made. So, which I find interesting, and it was uh, you know, it took thirteen weeks uh, to film. Uh, they used Long Cross Studios near London in uh, Malta, and it started from November twenty sixteen, wrapped in March of twenty seventeen. So, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, yeah, about eight eight and a half months, give or take. Of of post, well, they did. Uh, you know, one of the things I appreciate. Uh, so they shot in sixty five millimeter. Um, they were they were on the same basically lot as uh, as Dunkirk, um, and and they used a lot of the sort. So they were like, all right, let's just use the cameras and so forth, um, which I appreciate. I mean, it, 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 visually, this movie is just spectacular from it really start is. to finish. Absolutely, and that's like as far as the dialogue. Uh, as great as the seventy four version is. This cam- the camera movements in this, and whenever there's that, di- like it's never static, it's never boring, uh, and uh, just I mean, I mean the the color of this, um, they really use that blue tone mm-hmm. to its oh. full effect. Am I the only one who watched this? Like again, Brana knows how to compose a shot; he really does. And in this movie, his his talents really came through, and the way he composed a close-up of his cast and even of himself. There were times where I never realized, and I was wondering whether or not he, Kenneth Branagh himself, he had the bluest blue of eyes. And I was wondering if there were contacts, because I didn't always see the blue, but there were certain close-ups that they used. And I'm like, damn, those are blue eyes. Am I the only one who like noticed that because of the I, I wasn't. I wasn't looking that specifically at it. I mean, I did, but Daisy Ridley as well. That scene, that interrogation scene outside of the train in the dead of winter, you know, and and the the, the clarity of her face, beautiful woman, and her eyes as well. I was just like, wow, he really knows how to get the shot that he wants. Um, So in, 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 in shooting on 65... It's twice, obviously, it's twice the size of 35, you know, and it allowed for a level of definition in the color and the range of tones and contrasts. Um, so it echoes more of the experience of the human eye. Uh, and so essentially means that in layman's terms, that it'll look sharper. Um, it looked fantastic on the big screen. Yeah. You know, but with that came the difficulties. The camera is bigger. And this so thing's humongous. It's really, really huge. 
And, you know, it became a challenge because, well, for a couple of reasons. Um, first and foremost, it's a big film format. You need to process it. They, since they were filming mostly in London, right? The closest at the time was they, they, they would have had to have shipped the film to the States because there's a lab here that will process the 65 millimeter. And obviously the studio people were like, nope, that's not going to happen. Uh, you're not going to be sending dailies to Los Angeles to get this done. So they had to actually build uh, through Kodak. They, they, they built a lab, a uh, 65 millimeter lab in the UK for probably, yeah. So I opened up a lab in London through Kodak, which is the first 65 millimeter lab we've had in the UK for probably 30 odd years. <laughs> they had to open up a lab. Um, well, was it, you know, as far as they, it was a very conscious decision because they said, like, listen, we, one of the things I appreciate, they, were, they weren't knocking film or they, they weren't knocking video, digital, mm-hmm. but they said just the look of this it, it captured the colors in a unique way that we wanted. Absolutely. And then the other thing that happened was because the cameras, as I mentioned before, are so big, uh, some of the producers, the production designers and such, they actually went on the Orient Express and they immediately realized there's no way we can fit that camera here. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just too big. And that decision was instantly made that they had to build sets in which they can have removable walls, they can place the camera where they wanted to, and they can get the camera to fit. You know, they, 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 they could mimic and recreate the Orient Express but to their standards. So um, I thought that that was, I thought that that was very, very interesting. Um, They also believe um, the, um, the, the, the steady cam shot um, that um, there was a steady cam shot on 65 that they say could potentially be the longest steady cam shot ever on 65 millimeter, um, which I think is, pretty pretty cool um and i'm trying to think which shot i think it was one of the opening shots that they were talking about um but it's record-breaking statistic as jenkins explains harrison ken dreamt up a sublime steadicam shot which would be the last oh it's actually it's the last shot of the film and they say it's the record-breaking shot for 65 millimeter a steadicam shot so you know they really did take their time it's not like they were looking to break records it was all about composure and that detail went into this movie Uh, speaking of the train uh, some of the actors got to actually go on the Orient Express as well some of them did not um, (laughs) I don't think they know the rhyme or reason of who got to go and who didn't maybe it was just timing or whatnot. but um, I think that's yeah you want to get to know the space um, as well the cabins what you're sleeping in yeah you know what, what, what the experience is like yeah so I mean, think at best, what it was going to be a six day trip, uninterrupted, sure. if that's what they were. Yeah. yeah so, um, absolutely. So yeah, right at the beginning, um, yeah, they went. Uh, they they took this train ride. Uh, corridors are narrow, so a big camera. So they so they had to rebuild this train, and they rebuilt it twice. Believe it or not, um, first we built the full carriages and the locomotive interior and exterior and fully movable on the train tracks. Then we built the same thing again, just with interiors and walls, which could float out and give you even more opportunity 
for for shooting, but they did have something that was on tracks or a track that could mm. move, which I think is uh, which I think is pretty cool. You know, it's pretty interesting in which and how they were able to do it. Uh, but of course, there were some special effects too, um, which you needed. But I thought it was very seamlessly done. There was there was nothing that didn't look natural or unnatural, I should say. Yeah, I mean, the snow looked very gorgeous, and um, I felt cold just watching it. Overall. Yes, yeah, especially when you're outside. It yeah. seemed very very cold. They also made this avalanche was a lot bigger than say the 74 version um like i didn't in this movie it seemed to have literally taken well, you saw the, train. the you saw right. the build up to it you saw it you know i mean they, yeah. they had the money to really see it through whereas the oh avalanche came oh okay so. yeah it blocked our way this one you seemed to get I, oh i got the sense of a complete derailment that it could have been a hell of a lot worse you know <laughs> so uh which I found very, very uh, interesting. So, music-wise, what did, what did you think? I thought um, I thought it played well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I enjoyed based on in, this sort of ties into the promotion, but um, based on the trailer, they had such modern-day music. I was like, "What's going on? Is that what the right. movie's going to be like?" Um, luckily, it wasn't that, so I appreciated you the and switch. me both. Yeah, I don't like. When you have a movie that really relies on its on, the, on its on its appearance and of its opulence and of it being a period piece, sometimes it annoys me when they put in modern day music because it takes me out of that. Especially if I'm really involved in that period and it really draws you in, like a Murder on the Orient Express does. It's as soon as a pop song comes up, it just takes me out of the environment altogether, and I don't want to leave. <laughs> Yeah. So to speak, I thought the music worked very well. Didn't give anything away. There were there were really some really good cues. Um, I thought it played very well to 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 our period and to our timepiece. What I learned just before we went on air, Michelle Pfeiffer herself sang the last torch song that plays at the end credits, which uh, fun to be very very. Uh, I thought that was really cool. I got to say something about Michelle Pfeiffer. I not on purpose. But I sort of kind of had this past weekend like a uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer mini film festival. Uh, I had just gotten the Blu-ray of a movie called Into the Night, uh, which he starred in uh, opposite Jeff Goldblum. It was one of his earlier movies uh, directed by John Landis. It's sort of a romantic comedy noir film. Uh, it's a really good movie. I, I do highly recommend it. But in it, Michelle Pfeiffer is just so captivating and this is the michelle pfeiffer that's just on that rise and if if it were played by anybody else i'm thinking why is this guy following her and saying yes and it's because it's michelle how can you say no to her she's just so striking and beautiful and then i saw murder in the orient express i also saw dangerous minds which again I wouldn't say Dangerous Minds is like a great movie. It's an entertaining movie to watch, but it's entertaining because of her. She grounds that movie, and it's her cadence, it's her expression, it's her eyes. And even older, she she's just like a fine wine. She's just very graceful, and you believe her when she talks. And she could be as sarcastic, and then with a the smile, just lighten the mood. And her monologue at the end of this movie, I, I was riveted. I was riveted. And again, it takes it, 
it's done differently from what I recall of the seventy four version. I mean, when she yeah, the ending, that, the ending's when far she different. goes to kill herself with that gun, I was like, are they? I I believe that was going to happen, and that's all. And you know, due to Michelle Pfeiffer, I thought she was fantastic in this movie. <laughs> that she was wonderful. I thought so too. I, I think she's a lot of fun. Um, and she can poke fun of herself, like um, Stardust is a good example of that. Yeah, so. um, absolutely. I just, w- I, yeah, I'd love to see her in more. I understand she she's in a position she, she gets to pick and choose. She goes, ah, I want it to be near my family or yeah. whatever. But uh, she, it's, I'd love to see her in more movies. But I understand it's a rarity. So when I do get to see her in movies, it's always been a treat. It's mm-hmm. great to see her. So let's, let's talk about the promotion. Um, I thought overall, uh, I, I really like the lusciousness of the the trailers and so forth. The only gripe I have is I, I just hated the music. Mm-hmm. I, I hate the idea that you have to modernize a trailer with pop songs just to just to make it sell. I agree. Um, I, I thought it would have worked just fine without it. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and what the marketing for me did anyways was it did show that this movie was going to be True to its roots, like they weren't going to try to, um, they weren't going to try to switch this around to make it modern day. It definitely is a period piece, uh, and it looked to me like it was going to be a throwback. Obviously, Kenneth Branagh for me was a was a draw. I think he's a very fantastic director, and from what I was able to ascertain from the trailers, is him as Poirot. Like, looks like he's going to be great, and it all hinges on that detective. And then when that camera tracks down like to this sort of kind of scene where everybody's sitting down the, the scene where you talk where it says the, the, uh, kind of the missionary and when you're looking at that who's who of cast they don't do that much anymore since perhaps well Soderbergh just did it in Logan Lucky we had a great cast in Logan Lucky we had a great cast in his Ocean's Eleven you know I love it when you're able to get talented cast together in some semblance of a movie. It's the way they used to make the disaster movies back in the 70s. Just a cavalcade of stars. And I love that. And I think that it should be done more. It should be put into comedies more. You know, it's a good way to draw people in. And this movie did, to me, look adult. They weren't trying to get the teenagers. There's just no point in doing that, I felt. Yeah, well, overall, uh, the... um... 51% 51% of the audience opening weekend was over the age of 35. Right. So certainly not a young crowd. Yep. No. No. It, but but that's a good thing considering, yeah, I so. right? I mean, we need, adults need movies to go to that they can enjoy. And I think this is a very enjoyable movie. If you're, if you're a kid who's a film fan, you're going to enjoy this movie. I remember... One of the biggest complaints in 1974 when the when that version came out was that it was paced, that kids weren't going to like it. I remember, yeah, it was a slowly paced movie. You don't understand it as an 11, 12-year-old uh, or younger, even if you're going to this version. But if you're a film fan in your teens, you can at least appreciate the direction and how this movie was made in the cast. How can you not be enthralled by the cast? Old and new people... Willem Dafoe, again, he needs... The, the the moment that he gets found out and he changes his accent, it took me... I was like, whoa. Oh, my God. <laughs> like That was amazing to me. He was so good, and he seemed to eat up 
he just he seemed to be very happy playing this role too. What did you think of Willem Dafoe's performance? Did you like him? I, th- I think he's phenomenal as whatever he does. He's having wow. a good year. I understand he's fantastic in the Florida Project. Potentially, we could get that. him nominated. Yeah. You know, but I found he was so fun to watch in this. I like seeing him as these kind of characters too. Not, no, he doesn't have to be a bad guy all the time. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly true. Um, obviously, Spider Man is, is the most prominent one that sure. comes to mind, but. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I agree there, uh, yeah. playing counter to that. Yeah. So, and you know, you you mentioned Brana's mustache, and a lot has been, a lot has been talked about it. But if you're familiar with Poirot, the mustache and his his kempness is very important to that character. But it took the months to design the right mustache that he would wear. And then I couldn't help but think of one of our favorite comedies, or a comedy that we should, I should say, that we both enjoyed, A Million Ways to Die in the West, yeah. The Mustachio Man by Neil Patrick Harris, that song. <laughs> I kept on thinking of that song whenever I saw that. Not in a bad way. It was a good recall, but it was just, a lot, a lot has been paid attention to the mustache. Sort of a character within its own, but it didn't get in the way, for me, of the storytelling, because that is the character of and Brana did a lot of research. He read the Agatha Christie novels <coughs> and did a, what he felt was an authentic composite of what Poirot's mustache could look like. Mm-hmm. Extensive research. Absolutely. So, you uh, know. Overall, uh, as far as the numbers I have right now, um, a couple of days ago, 87 million overall worldwide. That was from a couple of days well, ago. Actually, more. well, yeah, as of as of the sixteenth, as of November sixteenth, we're looking at uh, thirty-seven point nine. So let's just call it thirty-eight million uh, domestically. Um, it opened up at number three, which it, was, it wasn't going to be number one. Like we talked about it, Thor, Thor, right? Not a chance. And 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 Daddy's Home too, which is a a much broader comedy. So I'm not surprised that it, actually. It could have been a hell of a lot lower, but I think because of the marketing efforts that they put forth to to promote murder on the Orient Express, you did get that divergent audience. You got that audience that wasn't going to go see Thor that or drop the kids to see Thor and or Daddy's Home too. I was like, we're going to go see Murder on the Orient Express. So it comes in at number three at twenty eight point six million. Now its foreign take thus far is sixty eight million. So its worldwide take is 106 million bucks so far. Yeah. That's not too shabby. Not too no. shabby. And one of the other things that I appreciated and I, and I snickered and laughed was the mention of, uh, you know, Poirot, Poirot, all he wants to do is go on holiday. And he gets off the train. And they're like, sir, we request you come to Egypt. There's been a murder on, on a ship. And I'm like, going on the, and I'm like, it's Death in the Nile. Like, oh, maybe we'll get to see Death in the Nile. Again, that movie had Peter Hustonov taking over the role. Uh, but again, a cast of characters. I wouldn't mind Poirot coming back. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. Don't you? And I would hope that Kenneth Brano would want to. He's a fan. And I think that's why they sort of kind of threw that nut in there that perhaps Poirot's adventures and mysteries could continue. Yeah, I, I think that would, that would definitely be I a would, lot of fun. I would like it. Absolutely. Um, well, overall, uh, reception-wise, B on Cinema Score 
with a Rotten Tomatoes of 58. Um, as it reads, stylish production and an all-star ensemble keep this murder on the Orient Express from running off the rails, even if it never quite builds up to the classic predecessor's illustrious head of steam. Um, you know, I, th- I think it, Rotten Tomatoes could be a little bit higher. I, you know, I could see like a 78 maybe. Yeah, would I mean... be a little bit more fair. I think the perception of the movie, and because it's paced as such, and because it's really not predicated on like the salaciousness or or it's not a girl it's not a girl with the dragon tattoo it's not a gone girl kind of a movie the murder mystery the murder mystery has evolved you know even to an extent like I'm going to throw the snowman in there because that was supposed to be a murder mystery but they're supposed to be dark and broody uh, uh, very very flawed characters throughout um we don't have so much as a detective working on a case. So the murder mystery uh, or the detective like, like Philip Marlowe's uh, or Raymond. Yeah. Philip Marlowe, um, Sam Spade, uh, Hercule Poirot. They, they're no, they're not in the, the, the gestalt, I should say of cinema anymore. That's why I was sort of kind of, I was very happy to have this sort of to come back because I like these kinds of movies. Because when they're done well, they're so engaging and they're so fun that when you get to the end, you're really not supposed to know who done it. And then when it happens, you go, "Oh my god, that's like a twist!" And that's what I, I, I think that people though, they we're in a much quicker paced environment. Well, I don't think cinema. we live in a dark. You know, um, to your point about like Snowman is a very dark movie um certainly girl with the dragon tattoo i mean you have so many uh dark themes there this yes uh the armstrong case is very horrific but it doesn't go to that level of um you know it it never gets fully explored in that way like right um like you know because I, i can imagine that like if this was a darker movie we could see like the flashbacks would really show like oh, how the absolutely. murder happened and we'd be watching it for three minutes. Right. Um, so, but this is about the characters that that event affected. affected. And, uh, you know, if you didn't already know the ending going in, which I'd be very curious um, to know our audience, if they had it, if they did know, because I'm curious to know, because I was going into this because a lot of people asked, was this worthy like, should they have remade this? Or should they have done this? Should have they should they have gone back into the well to make Murder on the Orient Express? And my answer was, why not? I mean, I don't think many people, well, have either read Agatha Christie and or are that familiar with the 1974 version. It wasn't like the 74 version broke records at the box office, you know, as a top 10 movie. Albeit it won some Academy Awards and got nominated a lot. But I look at this, I also, granted, I I know it's not 100% the same, but how many Christmas carols can you have? And you know what? Those are fine, you know, they're they're all unique in their own way. Absolutely. Uh, And and so with this, I think it's just a a different take on the same story, and it's Mm -hmm. fine. I think both can live. Like, now, granted, you know, yes, this is a murder mystery, and so if you kind of know them, but... That's okay. I, I I don't think you have to like if if the requisite for any movie is that you don't know what's happening, then how the hell are you rewatching movies eight thousand right. like 
people, you should never go see Star Wars again because you know what the hell's going to happen. All right. You know, yeah. like, come on. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that assessment 100%. Couldn't, I mean, because that's what movie going is all about. How engaged are you? And I find this to be a perfect companion piece to the 74 version. If you want to see how movies were made back in 74, which is an integral year for movies as well, and then today, and how Brana makes this his own, and as you say, his way of contemporizing the movie was the camera movement. The, the the use of the camera outside, seeing the train and how it tracked the train outside. Where in the in the seventy four version it was it was about how the train was leaving the station. The mu- the music in seventy four was far more symphonic and operatic to to you know um, you know unlike here it was I would even argue to say it was far more opulent than this version which is fine <laughs> and I agree I think they can coexist and I think they coexist perf- I think they coexist wonderfully they are perfect examples of how movies were made are made today and yet we can still have a beautiful homage to how movies were uh, yeah, I do. And I was like, who cares? I go, I don't think people, there aren't enough people out there who might know what the ending already was. And for me, when I walked out of going, you know, it didn't matter. I was engaged. Yeah. So, yeah. There we go. Curious. So they, they should, I wanted them to write into the comments. Absolutely. Like if they knew the ending, did it hinder their experience? You know? So yeah. we, did you like the way that the reveal came in this movie? Overall, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was, you know, what, what I like. I said there were similarities and there was differences. Yeah. Um. So obviously, him giving them the two choices that was the same. But um, other than that, uh, it, just yeah, the pay again. Uh, it's it's the subtle choices that made it different. Right. Ultimately. Yeah. Um. Which which I appreciated. And, and I could have come out being so angry. It was like. Damn it, a locked door mystery should stay in that. I should feel confined because at the end of the 74, he reveals who did it. Yeah, in, all, 98% of the action takes place inside the train. In this one, Brana said, you know what? They're stuck. They need to stretch their legs. Let's get them outside. Didn't bother me because I was so engaged with what the casting characters are going to have to say. And Michelle Pfeiffer, once she took that scene over, I was like, "That's she's great. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good time. So there you have it, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Murder yeah. on the Orient Express. Um, thank you guys, as always, for joining us. Do write your comments below, um, especially if you've seen the movie. Or, uh, well, if you've read the book, um, have you seen the 74 version? As Dimitri asked, did it impede your viewing of this? And so forth. Lots to discuss. Um, before we wrap things up, I do want to tell you guys we're going to we're going to be experimenting with some stuff. Uh, we, you know, we're going to do a shortened version of Daddy's Home 2. Mm-hmm. We're not going to give a full, full thing, but we're going to give some quick thoughts, some quick analysis and so forth. So hopefully you guys will enjoy that. Yeah. And then uh, we're planning on something uh, something quite unique, but in a, in a way that I think will we'll really um, cater to you, guys, you, you loyal fans, I think. It'll attract new fans, but those who have been loyal with us, which we so dearly appreciate, yeah. um, I think this will truly reward you in in a, in a very big way. Yeah, and, and, and to just further, I always love to thank these loyal fans because I've noticed, I'm sure you have too, they are, they are paying attention to us in a wonderful way, 
and they're interacting in an intelligent way. They're not, we still get the occasional troll, don't get me wrong, but there are people who've actually, they don't always have to agree, and they haven't, but they'll put it down, and they'll take the time to write, and they'll put it down in an intelligent way, and even if they don't agree with me, which you, you really should, but I'm just saying, I've enjoyed the interaction that I've had with people um, so much so that people will even write and say, you know, I was rereading my thing and I think I came off too harsh. And I'm like, Dah, don't worry about it. We're talking about movies. You know, I mean, the other day, you know, you accused me of taking dumb pills <laughs> and I'm still taking them. So anyways, it's good times. Well, Thank uh, you. You guys can interact with Dimitri and support him at DMovies1701. Please do. Uh, at Serafini TV for Marissa. She loves this movie, and it's quite unfortunate she didn't get to talk about it with us, so uh, definitely interact with her there. And what your Twitter. And at Phil Svitek, um, and of course, at the at the Popcorn Talk uh, for here and the various shows that we do. Um, like I said, we've got Daddy's Home 2 coming up. Um, certainly Justice League uh, we'll be talking about in the coming days. And, and then, spoiler alert, I actually saw Justice League with Phil. And that's great, because it's a rarity that we get to go to the movies together. So it was, uh, for that alone, it was a great time. We'll talk about the movie later. <laughs> um, and, of course, you can revisit any of our past episodes. So much to go through. Unfortunately, we don't have another Agatha Christie type of movie that I can think of. But uh, certainly, uh, certainly mysteries yeah. there. Yeah, so we, I mean, we did Gone stuff. Girl. I'm not sure about... I think we... No, you got I think we even... As far back as Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Maybe. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys Thanks so all. much. We'll see you guys next time on another Anatomy of a Movie. Bye. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. Expressed herein are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals.